Well, thank you guys uh, for your patience the last couple of weeks as we have uh, been traveling and we had some weather issues and so forth. But uh, even if we're not able to meet in person, uh, we will always do a video. And I want to encourage you again to be sure, be sure, be sure and sign up for the uh, announcements, the email, either at notbyworks.org or plumcreekchapel.org or both. It's right there on the homepage of both websites. Just scroll to the bottom, put in your email, because that's really the only way we can communicate with you to let you know if there's a last minute change or inclement weather. Hopefully we're coming out of the back end of the weather here for the next season before too long, I hope. But uh, we also will post it on the banners of both websites as well. So if you're not on the newsletter list, but you just want to double check, I just I hate for people to drive, you know, any distance at all and show up and we end up we didn't have it but lord willing the next several weeks in a row i'll be here i don't have any plans not to be so uh we'll be meeting in person and live stream for the next uh, few weeks uh, but we're continuing our look at the time is now why bible prophecy matters now more than ever and uh, having talked in previous weeks about key signs uh, prophetically the way the stage is being set prophetically that's kind of the subsection that we're in right now we talked about things like the granting of statehood to Israel, the battle of Gog and Magog, the rise of the Antichrist and false prophet, uh, the depopulation movement and increasing deception. And then tonight, we're going to talk about the, the trend toward the one world government. And a lot of the things I'm going to be sharing tonight, I have shared in different contexts previously, uh, including some of the slides from my conference last weekend in Florida. Some of them are new, and actually, I prepared them both for tonight and for the Orlando Prophecy Summit, so you get a sneak peek at what I'm going to be talking about uh, on Friday in uh, Orlando. Uh, but I want to spend the first part of our time together tonight making the case biblically for how we are headed towards a one-world government. And in the second half tonight, I'm going to look at some current events, as we've been doing, and geopolitical events and things that indicate that we're getting closer and closer to this one world system. Uh, so that's the whole point of, of this uh, study is to, to show you that the, the stage is being set. Uh, so to start with, I want to look at a key passage that you've heard me refer to a lot, and that is Psalm 2. Uh, it's really the, the, the number one proof text for the Luciferian conspiracy, which the Bible teaches. What is the Luciferian conspiracy? It's just a um, conspiracy between Satan, demons, and human accomplices that are all working together to usher in this one world system to control the world. And so Psalm 2, uh, which is a pretty short psalm, uh, we're going to walk through all 12 verses, it's just four stanzas, and make the case for this growing global uh, rebellion. So we start out tonight, I want to take you back a thousand years before Christ in your mind's eye, and you know, King David gives us, the author of Psalm 2, gives us a glimpse of this picture of the cosmic struggle between God and Satan. All that Satan is trying to do to harness his earthly agents and uh, the Luciferian elite, uh, as they call themselves, and attempt to take over the world. So some background. We know that Psalm 2, even though if you're looking in your Bibles, you know it doesn't say in the superscript that it was a Psalm of David. We know it is because the Bible elsewhere, elsewhere tells us it is. Uh, for example, in Acts 13.3, it's referred to as uh, by Barnabas as the second psalm. And then Peter and John quote in Acts chapter 4, 
this psalm and they attribute it to David. So obviously God cannot contradict himself. God's word is infallible and truthful. So by comparing scripture with scripture, we can say definitively that Psalm 2 is a Davidic psalm written by King David under the inspiration of the Spirit. It's also a messianic psalm. And by that we mean many of the psalms are prophetic, pointing toward the coming of the Messiah. And that's the case here. David is speaking prophetically under the inspiration of the Spirit, talking about the time when the true King of kings and Lord of lords will fulfill all Old Testament prophecy and take the throne. As I mentioned, there are four stanzas. Remember, psalms were meant to be sung. And uh, so this one has four stanzas, and each one of them tells us something about this growing global rebellion. And the key takeaway would be this. Submit to the authority of the Son, whom God has ordained to rule over us. In other words, anybody who thinks that they can usurp God's plan of the ages, according to which his eternal son is the rightful heir to the throne, has another thing coming. So the first thing uh, we want us to talk about is the Luciferian plot. So David gives us an insight into what Satan uh, is doing as he attempts to uh, harness his earthly accomplices, his co-conspirators, if you will, and tries to... Uh, uh, to take over the world. So it begins in verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Uh, this is the only time in the Hebrew Bible that this word translated rage is used. What does it mean that the nations are raging? We're going to find out in the next verse that it's specifically talking about the kings and the leaders and the rulers of this of this world. But that word is ragash in Hebrew, and it means to rage, to make a tumult, to roar or thunder, or to be restless or disturbed. In other words, these earthly national leaders, these kings of the world, throughout the world, are beside themselves. They just, they're apoplectic. They, they can't even rest. They can't even stay still because they're so angry at God and they want so desperately, as we're going to see in a second, to throw off the shackles of God's control and take control for themselves. Satan hates God. So he's making a commotion, another uh, nuance here of this word ragash. He and his earthly minions are in an uproar. And by the way, the closer we get to the return of the Lord, because Satan knows the Bible, he just doesn't believe it. He knows the Bible better than most Christians. He just doesn't believe it. He still thinks he's the hero. He's going to win. He's going to conquer, uh, conquer God. But the closer he gets, we get to the end of the, uh, of the age, the more of an uproar he and his earthly accomplices uh, you know, create. Uh, I believe, as I've talked about in my Spirit of the Antichrist books, that World War II was a real turning point because it was World War II when Israel once again emerged as a nation. And Satan knows that Israel plays a role in the end times. And so when he saw Israel for the first time in 1,800 years, or in almost 1,900 years, once again become a nation, he thought, wow, we're getting, it's getting close. And so uh, I think that's why we see a, an upsurge in paranormal activity around that time and all kinds of other things begin uh, happening. Uh, but David goes on to describe this desperate plot that's being orchestrated by Satan. He says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together 
against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, well, let's stop there for a second. See how that word anointed is capitalized? I'm teaching from the New King James, which is my uh, preference. Uh, if I ever use a different version, I'll note it on the screen, but generally it's New King James unless otherwise indicated. And that word anointed is referring to who? To Christ, to the Messiah. He's the one that's going to ultimately take the throne and rule. He goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, like we talked about in our first uh, session in this series a few weeks ago. It goes back to uh, Genesis 12 and the promise to Abraham. He is the anointed uh, one. But what are these kings and rulers of the earth gossiping about and taking counsel together about? What are they saying? David tells us, they're saying, let us break their bonds. Notice there is capitalized. That's a reference to the Godhead, the creator of the universe, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Uh, that's just synonymous parallelism. They're just saying the same thing two different ways. Satan does not like to be controlled. He doesn't want the bonds and the cords that are restrictive from God's sovereignty over him. He wants power. He wants control. That's why he tried to orchestrate the coup in heaven and take over the throne and didn't end well. He got kicked out and he drew one third of the angels uh, with him. Uh, he, he says, uh, I will, uh, oh, this is Satan. This is going back to Isaiah 14 and Lucifer. Satan, again, in, in the original coup in heaven said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. I talk about in volume one of Spirit of the Antichrist, how that's referring to the third heaven. And he wants to go to the highest level. You know, we've got the first level of heaven is the air above us where we see birds and planes and things. And we've got the atmosphere, you know, up above where the planets and stars are. The third level, and Paul talks about this, by the way, is the dwelling place of God. And Satan wants that place. He wants what God has. He wants to be where God is and be what God is and who God is. So that's their plot. And we see that in that first stanza. But we need to remember that the Luciferian plot is nothing compared to the Lord's plan. And David goes on to reveal that plan in the next stanza, verses 4 through 6. He says, and I love this, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold him them in derision. In other words, it's, it's, it's almost an annoyance. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like a pesky flea or something that, you know... God just laughs because they, they, they have no power. They're not going to ever accomplish what they want. God is the one that's in charge. God's in authority. And he's going to laugh at them. He shall speak to them in his wrath. Remember, the wrath of God has a technical sense in Scripture, referring to the prophetic wrath of God that will be poured out at the end of the age, prior to the establishment of the kingdom. It constitutes that seven-year period that Daniel talks about, the 70th week of Daniel, uh, when the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments of God will be poured out on the earth in fulfillment of prophecy. That's the wrath of God. The Old Testament prophets refer to it as the great day of the Lord's wrath. Remember, day in Scripture can refer to anything from a, an event, a period of time. It can refer to a, a long period of time, like from the rapture all the way to the new heavens and new earth. But most often in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is a time of God's direct intervention in wrath over the people of the world, and it's fulfilled during that seven-year period, the great day of the Lord's wrath. So he's going to speak to them in his wrath. 
And that will be the final cosmic struggle when everything reaches a pinnacle. The church will have been rescued before the great day of the Lord's wrath. Twice in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we're promised that we won't be here during the wrath of God. And then when the Antichrist is unveiled and takes center stage, everything will begin to heat up. And you'll see this uh, sort of contrast between the wrath of God, the Greek word is orge, the wrath of God and the wrath of Satan, also mentioned in Revelation, heating up, culminating in the battle of Armageddon at the end of the seven years, which, of course, the Antichrist and the false prophet lose. And Satan at that time is then cast into prison uh, as the Lord sets up his throne. Uh, we need to understand what Satan doesn't understand, and that is it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And nobody has to fall into the hands of the living God. Nobody has to be a child of wrath. All you have to do is accept the free gift fully paid for by the blood of Christ by faith. Uh, more than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. Whosoever will, let him come. God has done everything he can, making an open invitation, saying, Whosoever will, let him drink freely of the water of life, Revelation 22. And so if anybody refuses the free gift of salvation, then they have nobody to blame for, for the, but themselves for falling into the hands of a fearful, uh, falling into the hands of the living God. So we go back to the text in the second stanza here. God says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The future earthly messianic reign of Christ over the whole earth is part of God's eternal plan. Well, how do we know this? Because the word set or installed is the way some translations have it, uh, is in the perfect tense in Hebrew. Remember, Greek and Hebrew have different tenses. And the perfect tense it shows the action of a verb as if it's already complete and certain and guaranteed, even if it hasn't happened yet in time, space, and matter. And it hasn't. I mean, anybody, uh, you know, disagree with the notion that Christ is not on the throne ruling the world in perfect righteousness and peace today or all the governments under his control today? Of course not. I mean, you'd have to be nuts to think that, although sadly a lot of people think we're living in the kingdom today. Um, but no, he hasn't, from our perspective of time, linearly taken the throne. But from God's eternal perspective, what's done in eternity is done. And it's as good as done. I have set my king on the holy hill of Zion. We know from a human perspective, that there will come a time in the future, as Jesus himself said, when they will see the sign of the Son of Man appear in the heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So how can Jesus be speaking of something in the future tense that God speaks of something that's already happened? It's the difference of perspective. Satan does not understand that from God's perspective, it is done. That's why going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, God said, he will crush your head. You're done. And yet Satan's been battling for 6,000 years a, a fruitless, futile uh, battle. Again, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So that's the Lord's plan. And the Lord's plan involves replacing the prince of the power of the air, Satan, with the eternal prince of peace, Jesus Christ. And then we see the long-awaited prince in the third stanza. Uh, and the long-awaited prince, we read about here in verse 7, he says, I will declare the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I can't tell you how many believers 
read this passage and, and, and really butcher it, not really understand understanding what's going on here. This is a reference back to the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, verse 14 in particular. And the today that he's talking about is not the origin of Christ. I mean, Christ is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. He is the eternal I am. God eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There never has been a time when God didn't exist, never will be a time when he doesn't exist. So this isn't talking about Christ's birth. Uh, it's the day of Christ's coronation. It's when he, he actually, as Psalm 110 talks about, takes the throne and puts everything under his feet. Right now he's sitting on the throne and waiting at the right hand of God, waiting, waiting and waiting for God to say, go get him. You know, we used to have a dog named Shadow years ago, and she would she loved to go out in the backyard and chase squirrels. We lived on a wooded ravine at the time, and and every time we let her out, we'd say, "Go get them, Shadow." Well, I kind of picture Satan sitting up there. I mean, uh, Jesus sitting up there, and God saying, "Go get him," talking about Satan. And someday he's going to come back with a sword proceeding out of his mouth, and at that time he will defeat the Antichrist, the false prophet, and he will imprison Satan. Satan's demise is only delayed a thousand years, and then he gets cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. But this today here is talking about the day of his coronation. He goes on, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. I love this. And the ends of the earth for your possession. See, someday Christ is going to rule every nation on earth, and we're going to see a return to a global system. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Um, the ends of the earth will be under his control. Uh, Isaiah says all nations will be under his control and upon, under, upon his shoulders, right? Um, you remember uh, when Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness? What did he offer him? He offered him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, all these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. But it wasn't the right time, and it wasn't the right way, because these kingdoms already belong to the Lord. And how ironic it is that when all is said and done, and the long-awaited prince takes his rightful throne, it will be Satan who is falling down, and Satan who is doing the worshiping. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is what we see quoted in Revelation uh, 19, 15. Uh, rule them. Sometimes it's translated rule with a rod of iron. Depends on which Hebrew text the New Testament author is quoting. But sometimes it's break them or dash them. But it's really both. He's going to break them and rule them. Uh, and they will be under his authority. Again, Revelation 19, at the second coming of Christ, he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And then finally, in the fourth stanza, we see the, uh, the lasting promise, the lasting promise. He end, David ends this messianic psalm by reminding his original readers and us today, and especially reminding in an in-your-face sort of way to the Luciferian leaders of the world, that God's faithful covenant promises will come true. Those who put their trust in Yahweh will be blessed and those who do not will suffer the wrath of Almighty God. He says, Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. In other words, don't be so foolish and stupid. Wake up. 
I mean, you're plotting and planning, but don't you get it? You should be serving the Lord with fear and rejoicing with trembling. He goes on to say, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. That's a very particular phrase in not only in the Hebrew culture, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture, broadly speaking. And it was a custom of kissing someone's ring who's in charge to show submission and pay homage and to recognize that they're the rightful authority. And this custom, by the way, of kissing the Pope's ring comes from that ancient practice, which is kind of a sad thing when you think about it. But David says, no, kiss the son. He's the one that you need to bow down and be uh, under his authority, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. It reminds me of a couple of other places where this is used. For example, in the context of Elijah, uh, remember God says, yet I've reserved 7,000 in Israel. Remember, Elijah thought he was alone and woe is me, you know, nobody else is following you. And I've reserved 1,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So they would, you know, they would uh, kiss these idols to show uh, support, you know, their obedience to them and their submission to them. It's the same way you see people today kiss religious relics. You know, Catholics will kiss rosary beads and things. It's a way of showing who they're really worshiping. Or Hosea the prophet, in the context here, the Israelites had continued to sin more and more by making molten images and carved uh, idols out of silver and other metals. And uh, they took great pains to make beautiful idols and they hired skilled craftsmen to craft these things just the way they wanted them. And And they required those who made the sacrifices to these idols to profess their devotion and homage by kissing the images as the final piece of the creation process. It was a very common way. And Hosea says, Now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their skill. All of it is the work of a craftsman. They say of them, Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. But David ends this psalm by reminding Satan and anyone else who would try to rebel that they better kiss Jesus Christ instead. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. The testimony of scripture from cover to cover, line upon line, is that those who trust in the Lord will be saved. You trust in the Lord to receive forgiveness of sin and you know remove the penalty of sin in your life initially. That's how every person who stood up a moment ago when we rehearsed, you know, when did you come to faith? When did you become a Christian? Every one of you, if you're a Christian, did so the same way. The same way anyone since Adam has been saved. The same way Abraham and David and every Old Testament Moses got saved. By trusting in God, the only one who can save you. And today he does that by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. But not only do those who put their trust in him receive eternal salvation, but we also receive deliverance from whatever we may be facing. Because if your trust is in God, then human circumstances become irrelevant. And that's the reason, as I talked about Sunday, that people facing insurmountable odds can do so if they're walking in the Spirit and they're born-again Christian, can do so with an incredible calmness because they're not looking at what's happening around them. They're seeing things through the lens of Scripture and through the spiritual realm and understanding that their citizenship uh, is in heaven. And so there you have it. 
the Luciferian plot, the Lord's plan, the long-awaited prince, and the lasting uh, promise. So what I want to do next, we got one more thing before I get to the current events, and that is to, to take this uh, growing global rebellion that we are introduced to in Psalm 2 by King David and show kind of how it comports with God's overall plan for human government and plan of the ages. And I talked about this quite a while ago, over a year and a half ago, I think, here in a series I did called What in the World is Going On. Uh, and I also talked about it this weekend in Florida at a What, what is This World Coming To conference. Uh, so if you keep up with our stuff, uh, or if you've been here for two years, you may this may seem familiar, but I've tweaked it a little bit. But it's the same idea, just to show you God's plan of the ages in terms of human government. So it started with globalism. Did you know God's a globalist? Not the way we think of a globalist today. But God's divine design initially was globalism. It started in Genesis 1 with the creation of Adam and Eve. And what did he say? Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when, God, when, the, when man was created, there weren't nation states. There wasn't individual national sovereignties. There was a God and a world. And it was a globalist viewpoint. If you go back to some key events in human history, uh, using the conservative traditional date based on God's word, not the Darwinian, you know, uh, socialist, uh, humanistic viewpoint of secular science, but believing in a young earth as God's word teaches, uh, the earth was created in roughly 4004 uh, BC. Now, thanks to the satanic influence of Darwinian thought uh, through the compulsory government school system and a little help along the way from the Rockefellers and Carnegie's are going to be talking about that uh, this weekend as well. Um, a lot of people think that we started out millions and millions of years ago uh, and evolved from a wet rock and eventually got smart enough to grow legs and arms and we got better and better. No, God's word says he created us in his image. We're not getting smarter and smarter. We're getting dumber and dumber. <laughs> Depravity is a degenerative disease. It doesn't improve with time. And so, uh, you know, that's why people wonder sometimes about a lot of ancient artifacts and things that we find and they think man you know how did they build these you know pyramids or this or that well they walked over and picked them up you know they were a lot taller a lot stronger they lived to be eight nine hundred years old they had an incredible bodies and they could do a lot more than we can do now uh, so we're not getting smarter and smarter the way darwin thought the survival of the fittest and over time will get better and better and that's what the transhumanist luciferians think today they think they can transcend humanity but that's not what god's word teaches but the sad thing is, uh, it just only took about 1,500 years, give or take, for the world that God had created after the fall of man to become so evil that God had to destroy the earth. And we read about this angelic incursion in Genesis uh, chapter 6. This was, you know, what is it, 1,536 years or so after the fall of man. And then God destroyed the earth with the global flood as a response to this evil. He imprisoned those fallen angels in Tartarus, as the New Testament tells us, waiting their final judgment. They'll never be released. There are some, angel, uh, some fallen angels that are imprisoned in the abyss, uh, the bottomless pit, and at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, they will be released to join Satan in his final three-and-a-half-year battle with God. But the ones that were responsible for this uh, leaving their proper domain, they're, they're curtains. They're just waiting their final judgment in the lake of fire, which Jesus says is prepared for who? The devil and his angels, right? So the global flood 
that took place approximately 120 years later. And uh, that's about 1,656 years after uh, creation. Today, 2023, 4,371 years since the beginning of the flood, things have gotten exponentially worse as Satan and his demons repeatedly try to take over uh, the flood. Now, after the flood, we see the first major shift in human history. After the flood, we see the shift going from globalism to nationalism with the table of nations and God separating people. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel, circa you know, 2242. Uh, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a tower, a city, and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man had built. So this was a, a, a post-flood rebellion. It didn't take long. It didn't take 1,500 years this time. You know, the, Noah and his righteous family got off the ark, had children. They're born dead in their trespasses and sin. Before long, they're rebelling against God. You know, here we are 120 years later or whatever it is, uh, and we're seeing this rebellion again. And so God judges them by dividing the single language into multiple language families. And as these groups spread out and became isolated, certain features like skin shade and eye shape and all that became dominant based on the region of the world. But why were they building this tower? Have you ever stopped to think about that? The Tower of Babel, it's called. Well, to understand the reason, we need to go back to chapter 10 of Genesis, where we're introduced to a warrior named Nimrod. How many of you have heard of Nimrod, right? Well, the Bible tells us in chapter 10 of Genesis that Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. So Nimrod was a grandson of Ham. Uh, he was the son, Ham was the son of uh, Cush. No, he was the grandson of Ham, the son of Cush, which was Ham's son. So he's basically one of Noah's sons. The name Nimrod means we shall rebel in Hebrew. And the biblical Nimrod is very significant because he was really the first powerful king on earth. So those that are in the line of David's conspiracy that he revealed that we just read in Psalm 2, this was one of the beginnings of those that said, hey, let's take over the world. Um, the first cities of Nimrod's kingdom were famous evil cities like Babylon and Nineveh and Cala in Assyria. But Josephus tells us something very interesting about Nimrod. Josephus, if you remember, was the first century contemporary of Christ who wrote a lot of history. Listen to what uh, he tells us about Nimrod. He says, Nimrod persuaded them to attribute their prosperity not to God, but to their own valor, and little by little transformed the state of affairs into tyranny. It's exactly what the Luciferians want to do holding that the only way to detach men from the fear of God was by making them continuously dependent upon his, Nimrod's, power. He threatened to have his revenge on God if he wished to inundate the earth again, for he would build a tower higher than the water could reach and avenge the destruction of the forefathers. Why did they build that tower? Because they had just seen God destroy the earth with flood. 
And yet in their desperately wicked hearts, they were determined to overthrow God. And they said, but this time we're going to be ready. We'll build this tower. So if he does it again, we'll be able to rise above it. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and, and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city, and therefore its name is called Babel. Babel means confusion in Hebrew. There, uh, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So that is nationalism. And by the way, from that point on until today, we are still living in an age of divine nationalism. God has not changed the rules. That's why we need to fight hard and defend hard national sovereignty. Because we won't see the shift back to divine globalism again until after the rapture. And the first part of it will be a satanic globalism when the Antichrist takes over the world. It'll be short-lived for seven years. And that's what the, the, the Luciferian elite today are striving so hard to do. They're, they're trying to usher in this one-world system and destroy national sovereignty. I did a radio show this afternoon where they asked me some questions about uh, some of these things, and I, I talked to them about how they're trying to destroy America. And they, they made a concerted effort to do that around the turn of the 20th century. Um, but uh, you know, we see Daniel talking about this. Now, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, talking about the revived Roman Empire, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it and break it in pieces. The Antichrist here is the beast, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon that Satan gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. How great was that authority? Again, this is the Antichrist. Authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's a satanic globalism. But it doesn't stop there. The return to globalism will eventually come full circle back to God's divine globalism, as it began, as the Bible comes full circle. Like I said before, the Luciferian plot is no match for the Lord's plan. As we read in Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Why? Because he's already set his king on his holy hill of Zion. He's not there yet chronologically, but from God's perspective, it's a done deal. Uh, in Psalm 72, one of only two psalms that attributed to Solomon, um, Solomon speaks about his reign, but he anticipates the rule of his successor, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, uh, when he comes back to earth and has a future global kingdom of peace, righteousness, and justice. He says, blessed be his glorious name forever and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. So yeah, globalism is going to return, but not the way the Luciferians want it. It's going to return when Jesus Christ himself comes back. Isaiah the prophet says, at that time, the government will be upon his shoulder. He says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I mean, can we say that today? Surely not. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Daniel 2, uh, Daniel's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's the global kingdom. In Daniel 4, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Remember, after Nebuchadnezzar kind of 
got right with God. Uh, you know, after seeing Jesus, we think in the fiery furnace, I believe that's who it was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I mean, that would certainly get my attention if I was an evil dictator and who hated God. And I saw these men that I was going to burn up because they worshiped God walk out unscathed. So Nebuchadnezzar repents. And remember, he says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he goes on to say, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And that's the, the, the thing that I, I love to talk about and mention as often as possible, and you should too, because it, Satan hates to hear it. Satan hates to hear that his kingdom is going to be very short-lived. It's going to be just a blip on the timeline of eternity. Um, he'll have his day in the sun, um, but it'll be uh, you know, met with a quick wrath of God that brings him down. So if you look at an end times chart, really... We're living in a time of nationalism now, but globalism will begin for sure soon after the rapture. Now, I always like to point out, biblically, there's nothing that precludes a globalist government from beginning, beginning to come into place before the Antichrist. The Bible just says the Antichrist will take the helm of it during the tribulation. So we won't see the Antichrist take the helm of a one world government until after the rapture. But we could already be in some form of a one world government as a setting of the stage for this future seven-year uh, period. So, uh, the New World Order. This is what the Luciferians have been striving for since Satan got kicked out of heaven. And that's their name for themselves. Uh, they believe Lucifer was the hero in the Genesis account. God is the antagonist. And God was a cosmic killjoy. And Satan, Lucifer, comes in as the serpent and tries to you know, help Adam and Eve free themselves from God's restrictive uh, you know, order and so forth. So this is what they're trying. Obviously, uh, Klaus Schwab, we've talked a lot about him. But notice what he says. This is a new golden age, talking about after the pandemic from his book from last year, The Great Narrative. He said, would require major institutional innovations, and among them is a supranational institution to regulate finance at the global level. Remember, it's going to be a one-world system politically, economically, and religiously. They're going to control everything economically, whether you can buy or sell, or you can travel, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so a good name to know as you think about from modern days, the Luciferian conspiracy and how they've really ratcheted up, uh, especially since World War II, is Carol Quigley. Uh, Carol Quigley first published his book, Tragedy and Hope, in 1966. He taught at Princeton, Harvard, and then was at Georgetown University from 1941 to 1976. In 1991, Bill Clinton named Quigley as an important influence in his political philosophy. And when Clinton launched his presidential campaign, he did so from Georgetown and gave a great honor to uh, Carol Quigley. He has a profound impact on him. He mentioned, uh, Clinton mentioned him again at the Democratic National Convention in 92 and he accepted the nomination. But this book, uh, which is a huge tome, I think it's uh, 1,300 pages and 8 pounds, is essentially the archives of the Council on Foreign Relations and their plan to take over the world. And he asserts in there, he was their historian, he was given access to their confidential historical archives, and he, he explains that Cecil Rhodes and Alfred Milner and others had considerable influence over the affairs of the first half of the 20th century. And they organized different key Luciferian secret societies and groups, which I talk about in Volume 2 of Spirit of the Antichrist. 
But when he released this book, he kind of jumped the gun. Uh, by the way, there are two great short Cliff's Notes. You, you can now buy this book. It was taken off the market and all the printing plates they thought were destroyed when the Luciferians you know, found out that he had released it. Uh, but you can now buy it. But I wouldn't recommend buying it. For one thing, it's expensive and it's very you know, long to read. But if you buy Cleon Skousen's The Naked Capitalist or None Dare Call a Conspiracy by Gary Allen, you'll get the gist of it. It's kind of a Cliff's Notes version of it. But uh, he got in a lot of trouble because he disclosed these secrets that the real power center of the world, the Luciferian elite, didn't want to come about yet. But, but in, in being their historian and reading their documents, Quigley thought that it was a fait accompli. It had already gone so down, far down the track, there was no stopping it now. He said, I'll just talk about it. Well, you know, unfortunately, they weren't quite uh, ready. But he, he said, quote, I am now quite sure that tragedy and hope was suppressed although I do not know why or by whom. He didn't understand the Luciferian component of it. Again, you can purchase it. It finally began to be republished in 2004. Uh, but here's some quotes from the book. He says, I know of the operations of this network, the, the elite, the global elite, because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 60s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and many of its instruments. It wishes to remain unknown, but I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. Its aim is nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. Well, I wonder where they got that idea from. Probably from their bloodlines of the Illuminati and the Luciferians that go all the way back to the ancient Near East and ultimately all the way back to Lucifer himself. He goes on, the individual's freedom and choice will be controlled. What did David say in Psalm 2? Let us break the bonds of their control. Satan has control issues. He wants it. He doesn't have it. But he's going to do his best to get it. The individual's freedom and choice will be controlled within very narrow alternatives by the fact that he will be numbered from birth and followed as a number through his educational training, his required military or other public service, his tax contributions, his health and medical requirements, and his final retirement and death benefits. Uh, this is where we know that the, the false two-party system, the, the fake left-right paradigm, originated. It was an idea of the Luciferians to try to, remember, I don't think I'm going to get into it. Let me just look ahead at my notes because I can't remember if I included that in here. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to get into it tonight, but if you watch my presentation uh, this weekend in Orlando, which I'll post, I'm going to record it and post, um, I'm going to lay make the case and lay out how the at the late 19th century, early 20th century, men like Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford, and some of these others intentionally set out to destroy America because that had been their plan, the Luciferians, all along when they came over. That's why they called it the New World. It was the beachhead for the New World Order. Now, 120 years before the founding of this country, when the Puritans and pilgrims came over, they came over just as God-fearing Christians who loved the Lord, loved His Word, and wanted a place to serve God and worship God. But when the Freemasons and the Luciferian elite over in Europe saw this new world. They said, hey, this is a great place to really establish our center and really put us over the finish line of taking over the world. So they sent over the Luciferians and their uh, group to, to take over the world and establish this country. So I talk about uh, in, in my uh, uh, video that you can still find on our website, whose fingerprints are on the founding of America, how Clearly, God's fingerprints are on the founding of America because, you know, these Christians that were already there and had been there for 100 years had a profound influence. 
But Satan's are too. And, and, and to, to not acknowledge that is just to ignore plain, simple evidence. And if you just read some of the quotes of the Founding Fathers, not the ones that you hear people like David Barton and others quote, because they just cherry-pick quotes and make you think they're all a bunch of God-fearing, born-again Christians who love Jesus. They weren't. They might have been intelligent men. They, I, I would agree with a lot of their politics and their constitutionalism and their attempt to get rid of the monarchy. Fine. But let's not make them out to be a bunch of God-fearing Christians who, you know, America's the new Israel. No, it had an agenda behind it. But what happened was they vastly underestimated the power of God's people and God's word and the Holy Spirit in these people. And so very quickly it got away from them. And indeed, America became the mightiest Christian nation on the earth. And for the first 100 years or so, 120 years, we were powerful uh, testimonies to, God, to the gospel and spreading the gospel. But around the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, the Luciferian accomplices got together and said, we've lost it. And if we're truly going to usher in the one world system, we have got to bring down America because it's standing in our way. Too many godly Christians, too many gun-loving, God-fearing men and women here in this place. So that's when there was a shift. And we saw them take over education, take over the economy with the establishment of the Federal Reserve, take over uh, medicine by making huge donations to all the medical schools in exchange for being allowed to handpick the board members. Before long, they got rid of the you know, biblical concept of medicine, turned it into Western medicine. And now here we are 130 years, give or take, later. And look at the state that we're in. This was not just the organic decline of depravity of man. I mean, that's part of it. Certainly that made it fast-tracked. But this was an intentional takeover uh, of America. So uh, the New World Order uh, has is a phrase that they've talked about at length. And you hear key world leaders uh, talking about it. Uh, many of you know George H.W. Bush and his State of the Union address in 1991 in the context of the Gulf War said, the world can therefore seize this opportunity to fulfill the long-held promise of a new world order. Whose promise? <laughs> well, if you know much about the Bush dynasty, you know exactly whose promise he's, he's talking about there. Uh, Richard Nixon, when he met with the president of China in 1972 in February, he said, each of us, me and this president of China, uh, has the hope to build a new world order. See, every world leader gets to be a world leader because they're kind of put there. And, and they're put there for an intention. And they may not be Satan-worshipping Luciferians themselves, but you better believe they're pawns in the game. And once they're there, they're you know bought into this concept of a new world order. Mikhail Gorbachev said in 1987, we are moving toward a new world order, the world of communism. See, he thought it was going to be communism that was going to take over, just like some people thought it was going to be Islam or this or that. They don't understand that it's much, much bigger than that. Kissinger told the World Action Council on April 19, 1994, the New World Order cannot happen without U.S. participation, as we are the single most significant component. Yes, there will be a New World Order, and it will force the United States to change its perceptions. I mean, we could talk all night about Kissinger and some of the stuff that he's done to, to destroy America and yield, to national, yield our national sovereignty. When Obama was elected in 2008, Kissinger told CNBC, I think that his, President Obama's, task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a new world order can be created. See, remember, we haven't had elections for decades. We have selections. Uh, Obama was the first truly Manchurian candidate. If you don't know what Manchurian means, look it up. But he was literally groomed from birth to become the president. And they, the, the old guard Luciferian elite really believed 
that when Obama was put in power, uh, notice I didn't say when Obama won the election, when Obama was put in power, he was going to usher in the New World Order. And Kissinger betrays that thought right here in this statement, right after he was elected. But what happened was, any person in the, the highest office in the land carries with him uh, a certain degree of power and, and rights and so forth. They can't control everything they do. If you try to, you know, overstep your authority of the, the people that are really pulling the strings, then they'll kill you. Just ask JFK or Reagan, who they tried to kill, but he learned right quick and then became their pawn for the next, you know, seven and a half years. But, uh, but so what happened was Obama started, you know, flexing his muscles a little bit and there became a rift between, I remember talking about this at length back then. This was, you know, 2010, 2012. There became a rift between the old guard elite and the new guard elite. And Obama got, you know, too big for his britches and he went against him and there was internal conflict. That's the thing about the Luciferian agenda. It's not monolithic. And since it's made up of a bunch of Satan worshipers, it's all full of chaos and lacks order. And so there's all kinds of competing agendas and betrayals and fighting and infighting. And so... That's the reason they haven't pulled it off by now from a human perspective. Obviously, from God's perspective, it's because it's not God's timetable. But uh, Strobe Talbot uh, is the president of the Brookings Institution, another globalist think tank located on Think Tank Row in Washington, D.C. He served as the deputy secretary of state under Bill Clinton. In, uh, he told Time magazine in 1992, in the next century, nations as we know it will be obsolete. In the next century, we're talking the 20 you know, first century. We're now in the 2020s. And if you read my second volume and the chapter on the Luciferian timetable, you know they've been targeting the 2020s in particular, which is why there's such an urgency to this information. But he says uh, it'll be obsolete. All states will recognize a single global authority. National sovereignty wasn't such a great idea after all. Uh, Richard N. Gardner, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, he said, in short, the house of world order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than the top down. It will look like a great booming, buzzing confusion. Notice this, but an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, will accomplish much more than an old-fashioned frontal assault. And that's what they're doing. It's a multi-pronged attack. H.G. Um, Wells, in his book entitled The New World Order, good book to have in your library, he said, countless people will hate the New World Order and will die protesting it. World War II, Churchill said, from the days of Spartacus, Weishaupt, Karl Marx, Trotsky, this world conspiracy has been steadily growing. This conspiracy has been the mainstream of every, mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century. He said, the creation of an authoritative world order is the ultimate aim toward which we must strive. I bet you didn't hear that in your, you know, eighth grade world history class. Nations must unite in a world government or perish, Charles de Gaulle, same time period, World War II. That's why I think really things heated up by then. They had had, you know, four decades of implementing their plan, a whole generation of putting people in power in education and finance and uh, medicine, and they were ready to move forward. Uh, James Paul Warburg, uh, he was the financial advisor to FDR. His father was the famous Paul Warburg, member of the Warburg dynasty, and the, one of the ones who secretly met on Jekyll Island. I got to go to Jekyll Island on this last trip, one of my few remaining bucket list items. I think I might have some pictures in here if we get to it tonight. If not, I'll show them next time. But 
yeah, that's uh, over the Christmas holidays, a small number of congressmen secretly met on an island off the coast of Georgia and in a pretty evil-looking place. I took some pictures uh, and created the Federal Reserve. Why? So they could take over. Uh, but anyway, this is his father was the one. But uh, he said, we shall have world government whether you like it or not by come conquest or consent. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt said, behind the ostensible government sits enthroned an invisible government, owing no allegiance and acknowledging no responsibility to the people. Uh, Manly Hall, a Satan, uh, avowed Satan worshiper, his famous work, uh, he's Canadian, he said the secret teachings, his book is called The Secret Teachings of All Ages, an encyclopedic outline of Masonic, Hermetic, Kabbalistic, and Rosicrucian symbolic philosophy. That's a long title. But he said that the invisible powers behind the thrones, there are invisible powers behind the thrones of earth, and men are but marionettes dancing while the invisible ones pull the strings. And that mental picture left such an impression on me that I chose that image as a cover for my 2012 book, The, the Great Last Day's Deception, which we still have some out on the table. Uh, it was my first attempt to try to expose from a biblical worldview this Luciferian uh, conspiracy. Uh, so many other quotes here. I'm going to just skip ahead uh, because I want to allow time for questions. But I have a lot of these in my books. But uh, I do want to bring up Brzezinski because he's one of those Luciferians that was frequently on both sides of the aisle, like Dick Cheney. You know, he served for Democratic presidents and he served for, for Republican presidents. Uh, he served under LBJ, Carter, and Reagan. Uh, but uh, Brzezinski who died in 2017, he said, this regionalization is in keeping with the trilateral plan, which calls for a gradual convergence of East and West, ultimately leading toward the goal of a one-world government. And that's what we're talking about tonight, the one-world government. National sovereignty is no longer a viable concept. He said, the technotronic era involves a gradual appearance of a more controlled society, and such a society would be dominated by an elite unrestrained by traditional values. And in the context there, he's talking about values of liberty, right? You don't have any freedom. You just sit down, shut up, and do what we tell you. He said, soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen. He's echoing, by the way, this was from his book that he wrote in 1970. He's echoing the same things that Quigley was saying when he wrote his 1966 book, exposing some of the same stuff uh, that Brzezinski and other Trilateral Commission and uh, Council on Foreign Relations members were talking about. It'll be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date complete files containing uh, even the most personal information about the citizen. And these files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. He was a man way ahead of his time. Shortly, the public will be unable to reason or think for themselves. They'll simply parrot the information they've been given on the previous night's news. Does that sound familiar? Persisting social crisis, the emergence of a charismatic personality, and the exploitation of mass media to obtain public confidence would be the stepping stones in the piecemeal transformation of the United States into a highly controlled society. And this is the same guy who shortly before he died in 2017 said, today it is infinitely easier to kill one million people than it is to control one million people. They are getting closer and closer and closer. So here we are teetering, I believe, on the cusp, on the brink, if you will, of this return to globalism. And remember, it will begin with a satanic globalism, and then it will ultimately be replaced, as the Bible comes full circle, with a divine globalism. So 
so much more that we uh, can talk about. We'll save it for next week. But uh, we got about 20 minutes or so for questions. Does anybody have a question or uh, comment? Or too overwhelmed by all we just talked about? I did actually have. Let me hold that thought. Let me just because I, I don't want to be accused of being negative. I'm really not a negative guy. I'm, I, I mean, I'm a pretty nice guy. People actually like me, believe it or not. Uh, but I wanted to mention, uh, I'll close with this quote. Hope I, hopefully I remember I used it and I don't repeat it next week, but it wouldn't hurt. But uh, George Orwell in the BBC documentary called Orwell, A Life in Pictures, this is from the final scene when the fictionalized Orwell himself makes this ominous prediction and he's quoting some of the, you know, uh, phrases from the book 1984. But he said something like 1984 could actually happen. This is the direction the world is going in at the present time. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. See, they understand, the, the Luciferians do, that fear is a powerful motivator. But the Bible says, don't fall for it. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. The very next verse after the verse that serves as the premise for my two-volume series, Spirit of the Antichrist, that just came out this last year, says this, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in the world, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So I just want to leave you with that reminder. This is not information that's intended to be, you know, to scare you. We should never be scared. We just need to be prepared. And we need to understand how all of this is perfectly aligned with what God's Word tells us. All right. You had a question back here, somebody. Yes. You already know what I'm going to ask, but first I want to thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, yeah. giving up your No, I love it. This is why I'm here. It's to teach and to talk, so thank you. My pleasure. But I do have a question, and I think I mentioned it to you before. I remember, yeah. We talked about it Sunday, but I've already forgotten what it is. I, I do have a question on Damascus. Oh, yeah. So let me, I remember now. So let me, just because they can't hear you online. Yeah, so because Damascus is there in chapter 17, verse 1, it says Damascus was used to be a city. Right. And, uh, but then a few weeks ago, I watched Prophecy Watcher, you were on, and it was... Yeah. But, uh, now, don't get me in trouble by no, no, no. pitting me against someone else from Prophecy Watchers. <laughs> but uh, Mondo Gonzalez was the interviewer. Yeah, I love Mondo, yeah. I, I do, too. And uh, Salas, Bill Salas mm -hmm. was the uh, yeah. guest speaker. But anyway, Bill Salas, he quoted that... Um, Damascus will be destroyed. Right. And all believers and non-believers will watch this before the rapture. Yeah. That, that's what he said. All right. So let me let me take it from here, just because people online are hearing nothing but crickets because they can't. It's not picked it up. But so your question, as I recall from Sunday, is how can somebody like Bill say that this defeat of Damascus prophetically will happen before the rapture? That's what he said. He said yeah. it will. It will be a Right, right. And people say the same thing about Gog and Magog and so forth. And the problem is 
Uh, and I respect that view. And I, in fact, the whole Left Behind series that Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye put together, and I mentioned Jenkins first because LaHaye didn't hold this view. I know for a fact I've talked to him. But they wrote it this way. They put Gog and Magog before the rapture too. Uh, so some people, like Bill, I'll be with Bill this week, and I've never met him. I'm honored to meet him. I don't always agree with what he says, but I can guarantee you don't agree with what I say. So we're going to just you know, sit down in the cafe and arm wrestle, I guess. I don't know. But uh, he's a good man, and I really value his contribution to Bible prophecy. But people of his persuasion uh, tend to think that some of these prophecies could happen before the rapture. And for, for me, that's impossible because the rapture is imminent, meaning it can happen at any time. And if prophecies like that came before the rapture, then, for example, since Damascus is still standing today, we know the rapture couldn't happen tonight, right? But their answer to that, I want to be fair to you know, not create a straw man, because I have good friends that, uh, that hold this view, and I respect them. I just think they're wrong, but I do respect them. Uh, they would say, well, it doesn't destroy the doctrine of imminency because we don't know when it's going to happen. And so we still expect the rapture to happen at any moment. But when all is said and done, if you look back on Bible prophecy and you see, oh, Gog and Magog happened here and then the rapture here, well, okay, now we know what God's order was. But since we don't know the order, it, it's okay. So he's speculating that it could happen before. But I don't, it does, that argument doesn't really convince me, but that's, that's their view. So good question. Somebody else? Yeah. How do you see artificial intelligence? Yeah. Man, it's a big one, and uh, I, I talk about it uh, at length, in, and I've got some great quotes. I'll, I'll try to bring those up next week, but it is, uh, artificial intelligence is a big, big deal. In fact, uh, let, me, let me show you uh, just a couple of quotes, they're 30 seconds, but uh, this is from Yuval Noah Harari. Oh, I forgot I'm not plugged in. Anyway, next week I'll be prepared and we'll plug in. Uh, actually, hold on. Gary, you're sitting back there, right? Somewhere there is a plug that they set me up with. What is it? Hmm. Well, yeah, I think that's it, but I don't know why. Yeah, try this. If, we, if this explodes... I'll see you all in heaven. There's a one that's called like computer or something. Just unmute it. Do, do you find it? Okay. Well, there you go. Now we're definitely going to blow up. Yeah. That. Oh, perfect. Look at that, Gary. Who would have? I'm going to start over. Who would have thought that you and I? The most technological neophytes could figure this out, but we did it. All right, so listen to this quote. Science is not really about truth. It's about power. For the first time in history, it's possible to completely eliminate privacy. Mm -hmm. It was just never possible before, and it is possible now. Something fundamental has changed. Mm -hmm. When dictators always dreamt about completely eliminating privacy, monitoring everybody all the time, and knowing everything you do, and not just everything you do, but even everything you, you think and everything you feel. They could never do it, because it was technically impossible. Now it's possible. 
So dictators dream about eliminating privacy. This is how they're using AI. He goes on to say that they're going to be able to upgrade Homo sapiens to gods. Big products of the coming century will not be shoes or clothes or cars or weapons. The big product of the 21st century are going to be bodies and minds. So I think we are heading to, towards the upgrading of Homo sapiens into gods. Upgrading of Homo sapiens into uh, gods. And here's just a seven-second quote. It's not the best recording, but it's the best I could do uh, from uh, Musk. He says, if one company or one small group of people manages to develop godlike digital superintelligence, they could take over the world. They can take over the world. So AI, I have a whole chapter on it in the book, the second volume about transhumanism. It is you know, their attempt to create God, to, to, to accomplish the creative aspect, the one thing they cannot do because they can't create life ex nihilo, so they have to create it artificially. And uh, it's going to play a huge role. It's going to be the way in which they track people. I've got another one. I don't know if it's in this one or not, but this is, uh, oh yeah, this is uh, the president of the Alibaba Group, a Chinese technology company. Uh, and he said at a World Economic Forum event, he said this, 14 seconds, listen. Where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Stay tuned, we don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. Not operational just yet, but we're getting there. So yeah, through AI technology, they're going to be able to track everything. And that's the only way Satan can do it, because he's not omnipresent, he's not omnipotent, so he's going to have to do it artificially. But we'll be gone by that time, you know, by the time the Antichrist does it. Somebody else? Just yes, back here and then up to you, right behind you and then up to you. No, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the, we talk a lot about that uh, in, in, in the book and how they're using implantable chips to it's called the BCI, the brain computer interface. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I hate to keep going back to these, but I, I'm doing so much lately. I can't remember which presentation. I It's not in this one, but I have a uh, clip from just a couple days ago where they are talking about uh, doing first round of testing for a BCI where a guy is sitting at a computer and he's causing the computer to do things by what he's thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's what they want. Yeah. Yeah. So they want you just to be able to read your thoughts. Then they can, they'll use that for uh, even being able to cross the, into different countries or, uh, you know, they'll use it for pre-crime. Well, we know you were thinking about committing a crime, so you're under arrest, you know, that kind of thing. Because that's what he was virtually saying, not only was a crime, but he was talking about um, how even the Jewish people, he was talking about how the Jewish people were so wrong and so yeah. um, uh, fake news kind of thing. Yeah. If you stop fake news, uh, they would be virtually controlling how you think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, he, there, I mean, Harari is... Uh, he is tip of the spear 
Luciferian right now with, with Klaus Schwab. And you had a question. I just think it's kind of a beautiful picture, not all this junk that we've been talking about with the problems that are going to happen in the world, but uh, where in God's original plan of, of a perfect world, the globalism portion of it, he has God that is ruling over a perfect man and a perfect woman, Adam and Eve, to control and be, have dominion over all of creation. Mm-hmm. And, when, yeah. and when Eve listened to the creation instead of listening to the creator, the creator yeah. they automatically gave over that landlordship of the earth to Satan. That's exactly that's right. That's why we live here now. In a fallen world. In a fallen world yep. with the prince of the air as, yep. the, as the landlord of this. Yep. And how God's going to take that back is when we are raptured up to heaven, we become a God, uh, the, the perfect bride of Christ. Yep. And Jesus, the last Adam, is going to come his, back to earth. We are going to be his bride, or we're going to co- uh, co-rule on God's that, perfect world again. You absolutely said it. Romans 5. and That's it. The Bible comes full circle to a pre-fall Edenic state, and all is made right again. And by the way, that happens by the destruction of the earth, not the renovation of the earth, right? This world is is cur- under the curse of sin. Everything in creation is under the curse of sin. It's the reason we have hurricanes and snowstorms and thorns on rose bushes and all of that. So he destroys it, recreates it in sinless perfection, and, and all is made right. So I saw another hand. Yeah. You're up. You're up. Yep, Steve. Mike, I mean. Axed, yeah. Somehow, uh, quantum computing and its perfected is going to come into play in uh, how the Antichrist and this is being able to uh, manipulate this artificial intelligence and gather and control all this data. Yeah. The closer we get to the perfection of quantum computing. Yeah, so the question is about quantum mechanics. Yeah, and, and quantum computing. Well, to be honest with you, I didn't expect a question on quantum computing tonight. That's a pretty heavy one. Um, but absolutely, it is just another, you know, hole that they're going down to try to, you know, c- come up with uh, artificial uh, life and artificial abilities and so forth. Um, it's been a while since I wrote about that. It, it, it's uh, quantum computing is still a very debatable, you know. Science right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right, but he'll not. Satan's the great mimic, right? That's what deception ultimately is all about, mimicking. Remember, antichrist means anti against and also anti substitute or fake. So. Uh, yeah, they're going to have to try everything they can to have no boundaries, no limits, you know, to, to eternity. But they won't be able to, obviously, because only God is eternal. And so artificial intelligence, like we talked about, their goal there is to create life independently of God. And you know that's why they're doing the gender surrender movement. You know, you've got artificial intelligence has no gender. And so what are they doing? And it's by design. They're creeping it in through the schools and the Hollywood and all of this. I've got a lot to say about that in my message on bloodlust this weekend. But they're marginalizing the whole concept of gender so that when they roll out artificial intelligence that looks like you and me, which they're this close to doing, 
you know, it won't be as shocking to us that they're genderless because we've already kind of been conditioned that, oh, gender, you know, you can be this, you can be that, you get to pick your gender, you can change it back and forth a hundred times. Gender's not significant. Gender's not part and parcel to humanity. God's Word says it is. It's in the image of God and man, male and female, he created them. So, uh, yeah, I think a lot of that goes with just Satan's, uh, and I'm not suggesting that quantum mechanics or quantum computing is a satanic study. I'm just saying that ultimately any attempt to create a boundless, limitless world is not going to succeed apart from God. Yeah. And somebody else I thought I saw. Yeah. The Ten Kings. Yeah, yeah. I'm just repeating for people on here. Where um, it's, it's talked about, you know, ten kings will arise and then, you know, the whole thing about going to teach little ancestors how to insert the small horn and all that. But uh, I think it was Billy Crone who was, as well as the others, who were talking about what looks like could be the Ten Kings. Yeah. Of course, this is just kind of looking at possibly be more coming out of the elite technocratic um, world because they don't have a kingdom. Right? Yeah, so let me, let me. I think I know where you're going, but just again for the sake of those that are listening, the Ten Kings, um, it's always been fascinating to kind of speculate based on what the Bible says with what world events are happening. And so, you know, you could go back, you know, centuries to ancient writings where people were speculating on what it was, even back to the first Roman Empire, but, you know, the European Union, other things. My best guess, and I know what they're saying, and I do think there is going to be a, a non-localized element to the uh, Antichrist's regime. That's why I've said I think there will be a literal rebuilt Babylon, which will be the political headquarters, but I think there'll be a religious headquarters in Rome and a financial headquarters possibly in New York City if we're still around by that time. But it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be floating around, and with the technology that we have now, just like we can do meetings by Zoom or we can have virtual classrooms, you can have virtual world government without being locked into a brick and mortar place. But there will be a rebuilt uh, Babylon. But I, I think my best take on it is that if you look at the statue in Daniel two, and we've talked about this, the the revived Roman Empire will be divided like the original Roman Empire will be, and you've got five toes on each foot. Uh, the original Roman Empire had a western and an eastern half. I think the revived one probably is going to have components from that. So I think you, you're going to be dealing with, you know, eastern European nations possibly being a part of it, but also western. That could be Spain, Germany, you know, who knows, you know, uh, England. So, uh, and I'm not legalistic in saying that it has to be five eastern and five western. I think that's a that statue is obviously a symbol. It doesn't tell us exactly this is the big toe and this is the pinky toe, you know. But but clearly there's going to be a broader perspective than just emanating from Europe, in in my view. So. Oh, yeah. But I, I think what he, he was really emphasizing was the powers that were seen that these big corporations, you know, for instance, you know, uh, yeah, Elon Musk. Yeah. Yeah, and so he's just looking at these elites that are actually controlling things right now. Yeah. yeah. Know, as far as what we know, what we don't. Oh no, there's no question that, as I've diagrammed in the book, there's a 
there's a Luciferian, you know, or uh, uh, power structure. And at the top, it's six or eight families, and you've got the second tier, which is maybe 100,000 people involved, and you've got millions at the bottom level. And there's no question that all of big, big corporations are involved. And if you look at the boards of all these different media conglomerates and, board, and, and, and big corporations, big oil, big agri, you name it, they're all a lot of crossover. So there's no question that it's more centralized control than it at first appears. One more question. We're coming right up on our 730. And I'm happy to stick around a little bit, although I do have a 9 o'clock meeting that I have to get to, so I can't stay too long. But any, any last-minute question? We'll save the best for last, the most compelling, riveting, <laughs> pertinent question of the night. This is a real easy one. Okay, here we go. No pressure. No, this isn't an easy one. Uh, but I heard you say on one of your recordings that after the rapture, those that have rejected Christ before do not have a second chance. And that shocked me. No, no, I've not said that. Oh, it was on the recording. It, and I heard it and it was like, oh my gosh. How, I mean, unless it was yeah, like... It was an easy one because I, I thought you would debunk it. And say no, no, I mean, so the comment is she thought she heard me say on a recording that those who don't get saved before the rapture won't have a second chance. Correct. No, unless it was maybe... I can remember in high school and college leaning towards that view because my grandfather held that view, but long as I've been in, in teaching ministry, I never held that view. So I don't know if I said it, which it wouldn't be surprising, because I have been known to misspeak just in the rapidity. One time I talked on a radio show about my five kids when we really have six. My kids never let me forget it. They wondered which one I was forgetting, and I wasn't. I just said five instead of six. But um, no, I do not believe that those who are not saved before the rapture will not have a second chance. I think it'll be difficult. By the way, that view comes from 2 Thess 2.10, uh, I think, or 12. Uh, 2 Thess 2 passage where it talks about God will send them strong delusion. Uh, I think the deception will be incredibly great. And honestly, someone who hears the gospel today and rejects it, I mean, to think of them hearing the gospel after the rapture and believing it is kind of hard to imagine. But we know there are going to be people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, Revelation 7, that get saved after the rapture. And, you know, a lot of people have heard the gospel. I mean, I would venture to say, you know, almost every person in America has heard it in some form or fashion. If they've walked through a mall at Christmas and heard some of the good old Christmas songs, they've probably heard the essence of the gospel. The gospel is Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So that's the gospel. And it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation, Romans 1.16. So the Spirit of God works on you. You hear it. you got to hear it, understand it, and believe it. That's the essence of salvation. So uh, I, I, I wouldn't count on, you know, waiting until after the rapture to say, oh, if the rapture happens, then I'll know JB was right, and maybe I'll believe the gospel. I wouldn't put your eggs in that basket. I don't think it's going to be easy, but theoretically, could someone who heard the gospel prior to the rapture but didn't believe it still get saved after rapture? Absolutely. So, yeah, sorry if, if I said otherwise I misspoke. Uh, or if someone's out there cloning me and starting nasty rumors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think the danger is that after rapture, remember, we're talking about the biblical loss of lives. I mean, we're talking a quarter of the Earth's population. Yeah. So the likelihood that someone, if you were to reject Christ while you're alive, the rapture occurs, you probably don't get that second. Yeah, they might not get a second chance. That's a great point. Yeah, so... 
I wish I had some slides that I put together for one of the messages this weekend, but I did some more research. If you remember, uh, it might have been in, in this series, in number three or four, where I talked about depopulation. I, I did a numbering the dead, and I kind of went through the tribulation and talked about, well, I've, re, I've revamped that and revised that and added some things just as I think about what life's going to be like after it. And by my calculations, based on a few assumptions, by the time you go from the rapture to the end of the tribulation, you go from roughly 8 billion to 1 billion. <laughs> because we what, what that chart that I gave a couple weeks ago in here didn't account for is all the people that die just collaterally from the devastation uh, of the tribulation. And it didn't account for those who die collaterally from the rapture. I mean, think about that. The rapture happens, I estimated, let's say there's 8 billion people on the world, let's be generous and say 1 billion of them are Christians. I mean, I don't know, who knows, it's up to the Lord uh, and that person, but let's say 1 billion. If there's a billion people that suddenly disappear, think about the implications of that. What if they're a pilot on a plane? All those people are dead. You know, what if they're the guy trying to prevent a, a, a nuclear catastrophe? Or what if they're in traffic. I mean, think about just all the automobile fatalities one second after the wrap. I mean, you got potentially another billion people that die as a result of one billion Christians suddenly leaving the earth. So, yeah, that's a great point. I'm glad you, you uh, disobeyed my order of no more questions and brought that up because another thing to consider... I know, I know you are, even though I didn't know your name. Uh, no, I, I know Mike's name. I just am not on my game. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, not only is there going to be great deception, but there's, there's a chance that, you know, in the aftermath and chaos of the rapture, you may not get a second chance. So, all right, well, thank you guys. Let me close this in prayer, and then we will, Lord willing, see you again uh, next Tuesday. If you don't have a church home, Man, we'd love to have you at Plum Creek on Sundays. We now have two services, 8.30 and 10 o'clock. Uh, come if you can. Father, thank you again for this opportunity just to share your word. Thank you for the promises of your word that we know are infallible and trustworthy. And Lord, we do pray that you would wake believers up to the reality of what's happening uh, very rapidly before our eyes. Help us to stand firm on the truth of your word and to rest in the promises of your word. And especially we pray, Lord, for those who might not know you, that today... If they hear this message, whether live or on tape down the road, that they would be convicted of their need for a Savior and place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for them. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen.